I'd like to welcome you all to this afternoon's uh, South Asia seminar. And it's my very great pleasure to welcome and introduce to you our guest speaker today, Professor Mbomani Roman, who comes to us from the University of Princeton, where she is currently an assistant professor in the history department. Uh, Bhavani Roman has received her MPhil from the Center for Historical Studies at the Jawaharlal Nehru University in Delhi. And then she did a PhD in history in 2007 from the University of Michigan at Ann Arbor. She is currently completing her book manuscript on scribal culture in the Tamil region, a book that we are all waiting for. And it is entitled Document Raj, Writing in the Making of a Colonial Regime, Madras, 1770 to 1860. Uh, Bhavani's publications include uh, two <coughs> essays. One is called uh, Tamil Munshis and Kacheri Tamil under the company's Document Raj in early 19th century Madras. And this has been published in the volume edited by Thomas Troutman the Madras School of Orientalism. <coughs> and there's also a forthcoming essay entitled Disciplining the Senses, Schooling the Mind, Early 19th Century Perspective on Inhabiting Virtue from the Tamil Dinai School. This is going to be published in a volume which will be edited by Dawid Ali and Anand Pandian called Ethical Life in South Asia. That's forthcoming pretty soon? Yes. Okay. So, <laughs> Professor Bhavani Raman will <laughs> speak Indiana, to us today right? on the topic of what is a record? Tamil scribes in the polyglot world of early colonial Madras. Please join me in welcoming Bhavani Raman. Uh, thank you very, very much for the invitation to speak uh, about my work to you. It's a great pleasure and honor to be here. I visited a few times as a graduate student when I was at Michigan to come and see friends. And uh, I was telling Unrike, I never thought that I would actually be addressing you with my work. So uh, I'm hoping this is going to be a lot of fun. And I'm also very pleased to see uh, Professor Rao here. Uh, you will see in the paper why I'm so pleased to see you. Um, so without further ado, let me uh, quickly lay out some of the broader, um, uh, the broader sort of contours of the project, and then I'll sort of lead you into the paper that um, I want to share. Um, so as, as Ulrike said, I'm working on a book called Document Raj, and it's really looking at a range of informal practices that emerged around the document in the company's Kacheri as a way to think about the problem of credibility under the early colonial regime. Um, I'm primarily interested in thinking about this in relationship to the growing role of scribes, Karnakapides, Tasildas, people like that, and the kind of coercive and discretionary powers they were able to acquire uh, in the early 19th century. So that's the kind of the big uh, project. What I'm presenting here is a sort of small slice of that, um, which primarily have to do with uh, palm leaf record keeping. And I'm, I got quite interested in how we might understand uh, writing itself by looking at these palm leaf records. Um, these are revenue accounts that were maintained in the Kacheri and then translated or transcribed into Modi uh, and then finally into English, the fair copies, fair summons. So, 
Outside the dry colonial manuals that regulated his duties, the accountant, the Karanam or the Kanakapile, as he was called in Madras, appears as a canny immoral figure, distrusted for his ability to cheat both the rulers and the ruled. A company collector wrote in 1817 from Masuli Patnam, and I quote, In this Pargana, the Karanam is the principal character. He collects revenue from the Rayots, he pays revenue to the Sarkar, and keeps accounts of receipts from one and payments to the other. He has in it his power to cheat both. This is the main evil, and to this we may trace the refractory spirit that has so long distinguished this country. Close quote. These descriptions are by no means restricted to the official realm. The Kanakapile's cunning is recorded in contemporary Tamil proverbs. One goes, a settlement's Kanakapile is destructive, dead or alive. And it's reaffirmed in another popular saying that a collector cannot undo with his hands the knots that a Kanakapile ties with his feet. <laughs> the Kanakapile's all-powerful grip you know, it's a kind of a somatic grip on everyday record keeping, and the distrust it generated has made him the locus classicus of scholarly arguments that emphasize his resilience to historical transformation from above. A few decades ago, in the work of scholars like Robert Frickenberg, the devolution of colonial revenue administration onto men like the Kanakapile was taken to be the political consolidation of entrenched local magnets in Madras. The early colonial bureaucracy, and hence the Karanam, was viewed in terms of structural integration and agency. The Karanam has resurfaced in a different guise as an intermediary in recent discussions that have debated their role in the making of colonial knowledge in epigraphy, enumeration. I'm really thinking of Philip Wagner's work here, as well as Norbert Peabody's um, and their arguments with Nicholas Dirks. While such arguments about collaboration have identified the problem of the record as a problematic of archiving and have made the archive central to colonial rule, they've had little to say about something that I'm increasingly becoming concerned with, which is the consolidation of a new political culture of document rule under the early colonial state. As records became central to resource extraction in the early 19th century, a whole range of informal accumulation and coercive transactions around record keeping developed as the central problem of the company's kachiri. Many of these informal practices stemmed from the instability of records to problems of forged documents and signatures, a crisis of trust, and a document bazaar that requires us to acknowledge the limits posed by our own juridical understanding of written records and writing. By a juridical approach to written records, I mean our latent predisposition to reduce the written record to be the evidence of the world it describes. Carlo Ginsberg has famously identified this forensic mode of viewing records as an evidentiary paradigm that sustains a mode keyable with modern jurisprudence. The juridical view of written records roots the documentary in the domain of the empirical, making the document self-evident, a thing that speaks for itself. The juridical mode, in other words, works by reducing writing to a mechanical technology and the record to a medium of storage. Thus, between the poles of colonial economy, of the political economy, and colonial knowledge to which the cardinal was indispensable, lie a set of connected questions about the place and power of writing and record keeping. In turn, a systematic analysis of Karnam skills challenged technologically deterministic narratives of communicative practice, conceived as a societal shift from the oral to the written. In my broader project, I view the struggle in the Kacheri over written credibility as a struggle over the evidentiary capacity of record keeping. My talk today suggests that the Karnakapile's inscriptions should be viewed or investigated in terms of efficacy in regimes of credibility and computation that were not anchored in some kind of self-evident, objectively knowable relationship to the world. It was a form of expertise anchored in memory, skills of assessment and performance. Viewed in this light, the Kanakan's records appear to relate to evidentiary practice in terms other than juridical. 
The logic of Kanakapile mediation and his ability to muster credible information was not wholly based on the written trace required by conventional understandings of a bureaucracy or a documentary record. Their credibility was quite different from a filing system which relied on the capacity of the written record to be traced, retrieved and verified with other records. So basically this paper is about why Kanakapile writing was not a medium of storage. As the East India Company's revenue and judicial interventions began to introduce practices of commensuration that relied on the empirical veracity of records and writing, a whole new construction of evidence, juridical um, uh, discernments began in the courts. Kanakapile record keeping began to get incorporated into this new edifice, but at the same time began to appear to officials as an intractable problem to generating trust within the Kacheri. Today's talk is restricted to an examination of how Kanakapile skills can provide us, therefore, with a new way to think about the credibility of writing. And my argument is going to be in three parts. I first show how the Kanakapile began to be seen as venal and corrupt in the first decade of the 19th century, when company officials began to conceptually limit him to village administration. I then move on to discuss Kanakan scribal skills or expertise as a product of apprenticeship and pedagogic practices that anchored writing and memory and performance. And finally, I show how his expertise was manifest in forms of attestation that made palm leaf writing records credible in a way that was hostile to company objectives by the 1820s. So the first part. Kanakapile record keeping was a form of expertise under warrior rule that articulated with regional concentrations of commercial credit and exchange in South India that David Ludden has called urban, so rural and urban. Kanakapile techniques were closely associated with the world of exchange or the bazaar, and they integrated fast-flowing credit and commodity circuits into a profitable financial base for warrior kings and magnates. And some of you might be familiar with the Tamar Sitrila uh, text called Panavudududu, which is really a messenger poem that's dedicated to money, which talks a little bit about the kind of skills that these men possessed. Uh, the office of the Kanakan was part of the overlapping regime of polygraph circulation that included a variety of mediums and scripts, Modi, Persian, Telugu, in addition to Tamil. Uh, the records were kept both in, on paper and palm leaf. This scribal world was made up of very uneven jati and linguistic structures and integrated with the world of exchange through familiar networks built through that institutional engine, the venal office. Like soldiering, scribal posts were venal offices with entitlements that were both prebendal, so delegated, and patrimonial, so they could be handed on from generation to generation. And these were increasingly pejoratively viewed in the early 19th century, but in the earlier period, as scribes serving households were delegated to manage resources in the hinterland, they acquired rights to produce, called mirasi or shotriyam, or basically prebendal rights in settlements, which they could then pass on to their descendants. The scribal office was also an asset that could be fragmented, disputed, and sold. This meant that in some cases, scribes displaced other practitioners. Individual scribe families could come to dominate a particular household's record-keeping activities and then parlay it into a concentrated micro-regional sphere of influence. And so regions such as Southern Arcot came to acquire uh, a number of Niyogi and Velala Dubashes and Kanakapiles who began to associate themselves with, with villages there. Nanjil Nadu, which is a, a district uh, region in southern Tamil Nadu uh, boasted of many families of Elalad Mudira scribes who had found work in the Travancore court. And then Nello and Ongole further north became uh, a sort of base for Niyogi Brahmin scribes. Now, within this world, the Tamil Kanakapile tended to be closely tied to agricultural order and grain trade. Many entered the Tamil Kacheri system, the company Kacheri system from below, appearing in early company factory records as brokers, agents, and accountants in warehouses and garrisons recruited from neighboring settlements. 
they tended to be concentrated in the wet zone areas of the region, in Tanjavur, in southern Arcot, in Tirnalveli, from where they extended their influence into the more arid zones. Some Kanaka jobs led to powerful brokerage Dubashi posts under, the company, uh, under company officers and to fortunes in grain trade and revenue farming in the 18th century. A few decades later, Kanak Pillai Mirasi could land you a job as a deputy sheristadar in a company kacheri. So there's Jagannath Pillai, who was a deputy sheristadar in Madras, in the Madras kacheri, and who came from a family that, that had a Kanak Pillai Mirasi in Chengalpet. But the majority of Kanak Pillais were incorporated and dispersed by the kacheri at the lowest level. As the colonial Kacheri frontier moved into the hinterland, it incorporated greater numbers of wetland scribes into its edifice. We can get a flavor of this movement in a letter written in 1812 by the Tirnalveli collector, who wrote that in general, Karnam privileges in this province were restricted to the riverine areas of the region. And he wrote, and I quote, these officers were paid and entertained, particularly in the rich tracts of paddy land situated on the banks of the river. Some villages, however, did not have privileges for karnams, and those in which the inhabitants had not been in the habit of paying their karnams, in such cases, Mr. Lushington was obliged to hire karnams, and all such were included in the Moin Bazabita of his establishment. So basically, the, the, the company itself was becoming an edifice for standardizing karnams in all these different revenue villages. Kanakan expertise in revenue farming and grain trade was of great value to the company's war machine in the late 18th century. In addition to employing these men for their own financial benefit and supplies, uh, Kanak, uh, company officers used Kanakapilis to contain and sometimes oust commercial intermediaries. So, for example, Kanakan expertise was used in the considerable earthworks in the building of the Madras fort, displacing the supervisory role of tank digger or odiar maestris. And in 1771, Warren Hastings tried to control the Coromandel weavers by disregarding the brokers called Koptas and Natavas and appointing Gumashtas and Kanakapilis as his direct agents. So it's telling in this context that the pejorative stereotype of the venal Kanakan in company records began to appear with greater frequency only when the company acquired the revenue rights to Madras, to the Madras hinterland and began to undertake surveys. In the years that followed, company surveyors conceptually consolidated the village as an anchor of colonial administration and rapidly deemed the Kanakan an ancient village administrative office. The effort to make the Kanakan a key agent in colonial pacification in the countryside conceptually abstracted him from the wider works, uh, networks of exchange that his office had been embedded in. For example, the long-established office of the town Kanakan or Kanakapili of Madras, active since the founding of uh, Fort St. George itself, was abolished in 1800. It was considered no longer of any use. The Kanakan was therefore deemed an exclusively patrimonial post, occluding the delegatory aspect of his appointment. By 1814, the Court of Directors noted in a letter to the Madras government, and I quote, Karnams are the most powerful instrument of government for internal administration and justice. It appears that through them the frame of village communities have been held. They are the natural and permanent authorities of the country, and true policy dictates the expediency of our availing ourselves of their services, for it is thus only then that the business of government can be adequately conducted in a foreign country like India, where the population is so extensive and the habits and manners of the people so different from our own. Very soon after, quite naturally, the Kanakans also began to present themselves as natural authorities of local knowledge. And you can just imagine the number of petitions, pension petitions, filling the archives with this uh, rhetoric. However, conceptually detaching the Kanakan from, large circuits of, from larger circuits of exchange created an intractable problem for the company. As the Kanakan's records became the tool for pacification, establishing their reliability and credibility became an urgent political question. 
Company administrators distrusted Kanakapale records because they found them to be unintelligible and hence illegible to those untrained in Kanakan expertise. As a collector wrote in 1803, and I quote, we can't dispense with Karnam accounts in Malabar, that's what they called Tamil at that time, and to check them, persons capable of keeping accounts in the language are necessary. I need to only show how much my predecessor was at the mercy of the Karnams, since I believe not one from his Kacheri and Taluk servants could read a Kajan palm leaf and were compelled to receive from the Karnam whatever accounts he thought proper to give, true or false, to the Sheristadar. Therefore, the Karnams dictated and the Sheristadars wrote down. And so this whole idea of the Karnam dictating and the Sheristadar writing down became something that I got very interested in. And so what's going to follow is really what I make of this uh, repetitive statement in many revenue records. Compounding matters, and I should note that Sheristadars, you know, were actually writing in Modi. Many Sheristadars were writing in Modi and not Tamil. Compounding matters, reports like the one compiled by Alexander Reed had produced a template of social relations that had left out many aspects of Kanakan record-keeping categories. In such grids, as we know so well, the centrality of households to the dynamic organization of produce shares and revenue obligations was made irrelevant to the new taxation and enumeration regimes of the state. These new modes of knowing the country created an enduring anxiety about the reliability of the revenue record. So the question we must ask at this point is not whether, in fact, Karnakan records were commensurable with the new objectives of the Kacheri, or indeed whether they were verifiable factually, but rather how the project of commensuration and equivalence reveals why Karnakan practice challenged official supervision. By asking this question, we're shifting our eye away from the records to the practices that made them, allowing us to further analyze Karnakan writing as an act. And so let me run you through some of the um, conclusions I've reached um, looking, at these, looking at these records. So if you look at Kanakan training or sort of accounts of Kanakan uh, skill training in the pensions or um, in these biographies in the 19th century, it's always like two or three sentences, right? So usually a Kanakan would have spent you know, five, five years in a Thinne or veranda school, and then they would have acquired their skills in graphemes and numeracy from, a family, from, uh, from their families, kind of a family network as, a, as an apprentice. They would have served as unpaid assistants assisting a senior member of the family, either in kacheri work or in the assessment of land, and then after a few years would have started petitioning for jobs. And this would mean appearing before various collectors, going from kacheri to kacheri uh, with uh, character <laughs> certificates. And, uh, you know, they, they, so there's this whole kind of world of umidwars or candidates that then surround the kacheri. Uh, and they're often referred to by the collectors as mischief makers, and they become kind of part of an um, informal network around the kacheri. So this is, you know, this is a very sort of standard, typical um, Kanakpile biography in the early 19th century. So what then does this kind of livelihood story that I've just laid out tell us about orientations to writing? First of all, Kanakapile writing was a form of writing learned without grammar. As we know from the work of uh, Vilichara Narayana Rao and Philip Wagner, scribal, scribes, unlike poets, did not learn grammar. Chancery skills were acquired through habitual practice. But if we see practice as a form of learning, of disciplined initiation associated, say, with the Tamil word payirchi, or training, it would encompass both mental and bodily discipline. Habituation, then, is not merely osmosis, but a self-aware learning that privileged attentiveness and imitation. Habituated learning stressed skill building through repetition and action. It is to learn by doing. By extension, Kanakan writing, in the absence of grammar, was learned through repetitive action that built recall. And these skills were learned by Kanakans in a world of kin intimates closely associated with the world of exchange. 
Now, as scholars of artisanal training have often emphasized, the economic reproduction of livelihood skills is conceptually inseparable from routines of worship, auspiciousness, and intimacy. Thus, writing was embedded in this world of exchange, but in ways that make it difficult to gloss laukikam or worldliness as secular. This overlap is also expressed in the Tamil word yedalithi, or the writing on a palm leaf. Now, yedalithi is a word that marks auspicious beginnings. It means the act of ceremonially commencing to teach a child the alpha syllabary on an auspicious day. It also refers to the act of starting to copy a book in order to learn and to open an account. Writing in these moments performs auspiciousness, tying to a prognostic temporality, tying prognostic temporality to good fortune. I should add here that this auspicious moment, invoked by the act of beginning writing, was frequently divined when it came to written conveyances by Panchangi or Almanac Brahmins. In general, as Francis Ellis, the famous uh, Orientalist and collector of Madras, once noted, written conveyances in the Tamil region were deemed genuine only when they bore the date derived from the solar computation of auspicious time. And so writing conveyances could not really commence without the Almanac Brahmin or the Panchangi. Thirdly, Kanakapile writing was learnt in the when learnt in the absence of this kind of prosodic grammar through repetitive action, was anchored and absorbed through computation and memory skills. And so habituated learning do greatly from computational modes. And so what do I mean by this? Consider the word yelitu or letter connotes both alphabet and syllable. Yelitukute is to spell out, implying the ability to pronounce the orthographic units of a word in a sequence distinguished from reading out the word straight. So if we consider this an act, we would notice that yelitukute has the suffix spell out, also has the suffix kute, which means to combine or correct, to combine correctly or to add. So this is a skill that requires some kind of computational capacity to be associated with recall. Consider the word kanakan itself, kanaka itself, which um, was not mere mathematics, but a primary mode of thought that encompassed accurate reckoning, estimation, issues of order, sequence, and classification. In fact, kanaka might be best described as a mode of thinking that underwrote the, word of the work of the kanaka pillai, and by extension, the very logic of his records. So how does one learn to write through computation and through memory? Under their uncles or their fathers, young Kanakapilles further developed their basic computational schools, skills that they had acquired from the veranda or Tinne schools of the settlement. In Tinne pedagogy, the earliest mode of learning to write was in fact a somatic technique to create an agile mind, built to compute and recollect. Students began their training in the art of memory by writing graphemes down repetitively, copying it down first on the sand so that their fingers would remember, making it a very tactile mnemonic technique while reciting out loud the sounds of the alphabet. The practice of writing the grapheme with the finger on the sand by school children has a special name in Tamil called Nilavelitiv. It is once at once inscriptional, mnemonic, iterative, and somatic. As well, the taxonomic organization of Tamil phonology called the Nerinkanaka is arranged around the tongue. Sounds are classified along, uh, along, where, along those made with the tip of the, sound, tip of the tongue, soft sounds, hard sounds, and so forth. Therefore, teaching the Nerinkanaka, which itself is a mnemonic device, would have been built into teaching the alphabet. After this, after they learned the Yelitha, students learned ethical texts and arithmetic that basically sharpened their comprehensive skills by sharpening their ability to recall. Mental computation, as Senthil Babu's work on arithmetic practices in Tamil Nadu show, that, that they could be learned through a variety of practices outside the school too, through practice of play, through games, puzzles, and riddles, or through work. Here I have in mind the astonished colonial education officer, Charles Grover, who in his survey on education in Madras describes the phenomenal mathematical skills of a headman or a tank digger, Wodeyar caste headman, 
who could do accounts and write conveyances or straight without, um, or you know, engage in conveyances without without recourse to pen and paper. But many of these working castes were barred from entering the Thinne. They were unable to enter the world of Yelithip that connected computation to correct recitation, which under apprenticeship became the mastery or a mastery over the stylus. So what my discussion indicates so far is that writing learnt in this manner greatly emphasized its recursive qualities. That is to say, practices of memory were not constitutively opposed to writing, but inscription and recitation were valued for their recursive or iterative qualities. To call this merely textual translation, transmission or reproduction alone is to miss some, I think, what's going on within the Kanakapile records. Rather, this recursive quality has to be seen as resonating quite closely with idioms of devotion. So, for example, in a more general sense, scholars of Bhakti remind us that writing was integral to participant worship, in which the efficaciousness of words written rested on constant repetition to school the mind heart and transform the devotee. Words of worship were inscribed and recited by the tongue and the hand, were ingested completely and recollected. Reference was unearthed to repetitive recall, which gradually uncovered the mysteries of the word. Devotion helped meaning bloom, and the mind was supposed to work in this context like a concordance. Kanakapile writing was therefore a kind of expertise that cannot be separated from the performative and authoritative way of acting towards others. Consider too that the Kanakan was a master of fungibility, that is to say, he trafficked in equivalence. Writing then is more than a representation of reality, but a form of power. Grain merchants, for example, just to give you another example of people who computed habitually, routinely employed measurers who worked in groups, supervised by maestries, and learned their trade of enumeration and estimation through habitual practice. But computation within the Tamil realm was substance-specific, so measures of land or grain or water were all quite different. Kanakapile Kanaka was not just therefore a variety of computation, but traversed these various topics or these various types. Thus, the differential incorporation and evidence of flexibility in measurements, the well-known complaint in company records about the absence of standardized measurements, for example, underscore the tremendous skill of Kanaka, of Kanaka at work. So the Kanakan converted values, assessed quantities and different measures, and in this context, writing acquired a kind of alchemical texture. These skills of adjudicating equivalence were crucial to the conduct of business, but it was also crucial to the, to the dispute resolution process. So typically, an Ur Kanakapile, or a town Kanakapile, or a settlement Kanakapile, was trained to compute shares accurately and, rem and uh, remember household genealogies of the settlements he supervised. This training allowed him to offer authentic accounts of disputes, capital transfer, and ownership of rights to resources. It allowed him, in other words, to recount the past, account for the past, of past events and play a crucial role in adjudicating the future. This was the authority behind Karanam Parampare, or the tradition of the Kanakapile, now glossed as oral tradition. And so Kanakapile's wrote kaifiats in consultation with the respectable gentry of the settlement, and these were primarily produced in the course of disputes. So having given you a sort of glimpse of the kind of informal learning that made up Kanakapile's skills, I now move on to the next part of the argument to suggest how this discussion of Kanakapile expertise related to evidentiary practices of records and how they challenged the juridical mode of thinking about writing and veracity. Evidence from official correspondence suggests that the efficacy of conveyances written by the Kanakapile was not anchored in the writing itself, but in attestation practices and practices of discernment. So from Ellis's collections, we gather that the Kanakapile had to attest and therefore guarantee a written conveyance. His formal consent, apart from um, making him the notary of several uh, records that uh, were that circulated uh, locally, 
there were uh, also suggests that the continuity and the subtle lexical variations of the conveyances suggest that practices of document authentication were closely tied to regimes of expert discernment. And so forgeries were not discerned by, were only discerned by experts, necessarily Kanakapilis, based on repeated appearances of words, subject arrangements, and the like. So it wasn't quite uh, a one-to-one -one, uh, discernment or verification that was based on some idea of the master document. And this would suggest that Karnakapillai copying culture was not sheer veritable correspondence, but recursive iteration. Philip Wagner's research on the establishment of epigraphy by colonial orientalists, by company orientalists with neogi specialists, implies that it was only with the development of epigraphy that records could, in a sense, speak for themselves. And so what we find here is that the Madras Supreme Court routinely accepted and folded in palm leaf uh, documents into their evidentiary, um, uh, as admitted them as evidence into their, and looked at them through codes derived from uh, Colebrook um, and Halhead. But we would see that in many of these cases, um, the judges would get uh, extremely um, puzzled by whether they were genuine or not. And so you get many of these cases actually dissolving uh, into a um, into a kind of an in inability of people to take decisions because the, the the documents are deemed forged, and so in a sense forms of discernment were not readily extractable from the person of the Kanakan. Ellis's comments on deeds suggest that the words of the document emulated pre-existing models, but that these documents were not just formulaic. That is to say, they were not texts mindlessly reproduced by rote, but they displayed enumerative thinking. So, for example, commenting favorably on a specimen of a Bhudana Patrikam or a gift deed, he noticed, he wrote, this is a good specimen of a, of a deed of gift of land. Its subdivisions differ somewhat from those of the bill of sale, and therefore they are enumerated as, first, the year and date, second, the declaration of the givers and the receivers and the thing given, third, the particularizations of the latter, and so on. Now, if you look at it, this bears closely with the enumerative logic of Karnakapile records that I now want to turn to and to get at really the sense of performative and familial logic of these, of, this record, of these records and their expertise. A recent study of revenue records collected in the 1770s by engineer Barnard, an early surveyor of the Chingalpet hinterland of Madras, suggests that palm leaf village records in the Tamil region were typically organized in two forms. They were the Tarapadi Vaghayadu, or the detailed accounts, and the Tukhayadu, or the summaries of several categories that could be computed in different combinations. These text genres or records were the sole provenance of the Kanakapile. The summaries were essentially a key to the Kanakapile's memory and simultaneously mnemonic. The detailed accounts of the Tarapadi Vakhayadu essentially computes the productivity of resources along the lines of a household survey, and they are sort of similar to the Kanishmari records debated by Norbert Peabody. But they underscore the importance of family genealogy as an important category of record keeping. So these households were bound up with the details of shares in grain produce. The ability to produce credible information required the knowledge of the Tarapadi Vikayadu and grounded the Kanakapile's testimony. And so often when company officers would call upon the Kanakapile's to give authoritative testimony that accounted for the history of disputes, they would in fact refer to these records and they would then you know, talk authoritatively about what, who actually owned these different shares. Examples from the McKinsey collection further suggest that Kanakapile testimonies were invariably based on their ability to recount or produce these vaheirus. His scribal assistants collected a large number of these texts in summaries. So these were all summaries written in response to, the McKinsey, to McKinsey's questions. So basically, people would go out with McKinsey's question and ask these Kanakapile's various questions. And then the Kanakapile's would write out in various combinations, depending on what the question was, a set of accounts, which are now seen as uh, texts of local history. 
But these Vaheru were not written documents to be, but were, should be read as authoritative speech of a specialist. In fact, it illustrates formal computation based on a trained memory. So for example, what we now term as enumeration or statistical census information is declared in these records as if recited from memory. And if you look at these in the way that they are arranged, um, you, you can almost sort of recite them out aloud as part of five Kavare houses, men, women, and children, 40 as part of Agamudiyar households, men, women, and children, 2,200, and you can sort of imagine them being recited out aloud and read <coughs> and written. So these enumerative habits of the Kanakan, I argue, are quite different from the textualized version of record keeping. And I should also note that the notations contained in several of these records can, are actually shortcuts, and such shorthand suggests computation conducted through a mode of recitation anchored in skills of recall. Certain other sources suggest that the writings in these accounts were not really establishing written corroboration, but were guaranteed by the Kanakapile's memory. A company official in charge of a grain warehouse defended himself against allegations of fraud by describing the methods used to secure the accuracy of revenue accounts. He declared that the Kanakapilis proved the authenticity of written palm leaf records, and I quote, the records are identified by the depositions of the Kanakapilis, who themselves wrote it and declare that they are correct, close quote. That is to say, Kanakapilis identified the records, guaranteed their truth to a testimony rather than through corroboration established by correspondence with other written records. And this is a very sort of, this testimonial attestation framework comes up again and again in almost every Jamabandi that is conducted. Such reliance on testimony, guaranteed by status, seems to clearly be linked to memory when Kanakapilis offered their formal testimony as a pair did during a dispute in Chengalpet between castes of the Agamudiyar and the Brahmins in 1786. In response to a question, Kondapile, the village Kanakapile of Sri Perambudu, declared, and I quote, that before and after the company rule, these Agamudiyars farmed. They did not do it as servants under the temple. They neither paid the tunduvaram or the quit rent. This we are acquainted with for 40 years, and before then we never heard anything else from our ancestors. <coughs> Close quote. Thus it's clear that Kanakapilas often produced these accounts on demand. He also used written notes to remember and sometimes wrote them down on the spot from memory. And the detailed records were thus, in a sense, to aid the archive in his mind. The process of converting information in Tamil palm leaf through dictation into paper on Modi in the Kacheri gives further evidence that the authenticity of the records was confirmed by mental computation and not word-for-word -word written verification. Most often, company records in English and Gumashta abstracts in Modi were constructed out of Tamil summaries, which were brought in and read out out loud. The Gumashtas hearing them out, uh, hearing them out would then write them down, transcribe them down into Modi script. The Gumashta would then read out his summary to a writer who would then transcribe it similarly into English. Record keeping in the company's scriptoria was thus through dictation rather than written word-to-word -word correspondence. The implication of this system is fairly significant for Kacheri work. Not only were accounts primarily an aid to mental computation, but translation into different texts was primarily conducted through transcriptions of figures read out aloud. This is an important distinction to bear in mind because it implies that palm leaf accounts were not regularly collated into archival systems, even if they bore date cycles. And this gives, leads me to the final section, which is really about distrust. The problem of establishing a numerical and verifiable correspondence between English records and paper and Tamil accounts on palm leaf thus became a problem of increasing concern as the company made land settlements with inhabitants and desired to hold an empirically surveyed and accessible, as assessed measure of resources. Not only were Kanakan testimonial frames different from what the company now desired, but Kanakan assessment practices were not empirically measurable. In fact, Kanakapilis, without the aids of scales or rulers, would look at an object, a field of grain, a line of earthworks, an irrigation tank, and assess the value of the work and assess its costs. 
these forms of computation were of course not accessible to his supervisors. The records and reports investigating Kacheri embezzlement paint a vivid picture of the system and the increasing hostility with which company officers began to view these practices. The famous investigation of the Coimbatore uh, embezzlement scam in 1850 undertaken against Kasi Chetiar is a case in point. Kasi Chetiar was a Kacheri scribe who siphoned off a large amount of money uh, for his own private trade. The company officials, when they began to investigate this, wrote that the accounts offered as evidence in the investigation were not entirely reliable because they were constructed from Kanakapillai memory and contained insufficient detail. Faced with an absence of a legitimately archived paper trail, the investigators Thomas Munro and John Sullivan turned to, Kachi, uh, to Chetia's associates, mostly Kanakapillai, to reconstruct the details of the fraud. The investigation relied heavily on the testimony of Narayanappa, an accountant who was employed by Kasi Chetiar. Narayanappa was, un was unable to produce any original papers to substantiate his testimony. The investigators argued that although Kasi Chetiar took the documents away, Narayanappa was, and I quote, so completely the master of the subject, close quote, that with the help of the public account and some memorandums of his own, he would be able to display not only the whole amount embezzled in the repairs of that year, but also the particular works that were falsely charged. In a similar manner, other Chetiar underlings were asked to draw out accounts from memory, showing the particulars of fraud, but because they had been personally involved in the super superintendence of the activities and had assisted in the framing of the false accounts themselves. So they didn't have the false accounts. They had, they had to then, from memory, reconstruct the so-called real accounts. The investigators of Kasi Chetiar's activities found themselves relying on account summaries rather than all the details and soon discovered to their consternation that account summaries were not based on observed measurement but information collected from other sources. So the inquiry into Chetiar's private trade in sandalwood, for example, was reconstructed from a set of accounts written on black books with slate that were kept by accountants in the Karnataka area. The black books in question were drawn up from lists given by head bullock men who transported the sandalwood. So these were not based on log books. So although the 1815 investigation proceeded in the traditional manner, it was clear that its methods were no longer tenable. Essentially, the older system had rested on the premise that information about resources and accounts would remain the provenance of highly restricted specialists. It was this close sense of circulation and specialist knowledge that the company administrative procedures broke down through investigative reports that circulated it back to Britain in a form consider considered fit for debate and discussion in the British Parliament. When the information presented by Kanakapilis entered this new translocative and translated domain of the colonial report, it was met with growing discomfort. And the comments that followed after this 1815 investigation were things like, they do not show the amount for every year for which they give the estimates, the amounts were actually not, are not verifiable, not reliable, and so on. As a result, in response, the Madras officers turned to the perpetuation of patronage and former systems to deal with Kasi Chetiar. They began to accept testimonies from petitioners who had submitted letters of complaint. So this was, you know, so all his enemies, all his detractors were then called back into the kachiri, rewarded, and uh, made to write petitions. Testimonies, sorry. In a way, the overt reliance on the informal system stemmed from the company's office, from the company officers wrestling with the Kanakapillai skills. Although officers periodically suggested the establishment of native revenue schools to train Kanakapillais, these plans generally failed. And indeed, company revenue procedures buttress greatly the Kanakapile's hereditary ties. My discussion of Kanakapile's skills suggests that although they are quite distinct from the conventional understanding of secretarial language skills, uh, they are uh, 
so, sorry, that they are quite different from conventional understandings of secretarial language skills. Kanaka in this formulation is not calculative in the mathematical sense alone, but it's an entire mode of thinking about a system of computation that encompassed record keeping, accounting, and language. The world of the Kanakapile, his records and his status as a notary, turned around his memory. Distinctions between accounting and writing in Tamar began to appear increasingly as the East India Company began to attach greater value to regular records, verifiability, assembled in logbooks, and began to conduct documentary transactions in the spoken language of Tamil. So what are some of the conclusions? I have in this talk tried to de delineate what made the Kanakapile record authoritative. As the company began to use record keeping as a tool for pacification and written accountability, officials began to express their hostility to the norms of credibility and skill that undergirded Kanakapile writing practices. And I've tried to show how these regimes of credibility, when seen in this context of his training, push against these juridical frames through which we tend to view documentary writing. Kanakan records were anchored in conventions of mental accounts, mnemonic practices, and computational patterns. They represent a hyperformal expertise that could not be readily, readily read, uh, rendered true or false through empirical measurement or detached from frames of testimonial attestation. The credibility of records was located in his expertise and in a testimonial world of notables and resource-rich social networks that made up the body politic of warrior kingdoms. So where do my arguments about scribal skills square with recent debates on uh, the role of these intermediaries in colonial knowledge systems. In these discussions and the debates um, that we've all been reading for the past few years, the continuity of scribal practice into texts of colonial knowledge is posited as an argument about epistemic rupture embodied in textualization. So to give you a quick example, if you take, uh, if you take the case of the Kanchumari accounts that were kept by old regime scribes. These, these records, as we know, were kept by many 18th century polities and were routinely called Kanchumaris in the sort of central area. And what I've actually talked about, the Vakhayedu, is one kind of Kanchumari account that was kept in the Tamil area. Now, Norbert Peabody has argued on the basis of the similarities between these records and early colonial surveys that early colonial enumeration was context sensitive and squarely drew upon commercially inflected pre colonial antecedents of Kanchumaris. And he concludes that merchants and scribes actively inserted their enumerative habits into colonial record keeping. And that I quote, this intervention not only had implications for the outcome of local rivalries among indigenous groups, but it also had longer term implications for how these groups entrenched their authority in the colonial bureaucracy itself, close quote. Nicholas Dirks, on the other hand, has argued that when these records, when these documents were collected, they were transformed by the process of textualization. So text removed out of the context of warrior courts and inserted into a new regime was such that different voices, and I quote, agencies and modes of author authorization were then, that were implicated in the production of the archive, became muffled and then lost once they inhabited the new colonial archive, close quote. Now these arguments have done much, as I said earlier, to make the political project of archiving central to colonial rule. And clearly, the paper draws on several insights from these debates. But what it wants to do is really to tell a different story about the transposition of old regime records into the bureaucratic edifice of the early colonial state. By not presupposing the evidentiary value of records and by not limiting the record to its archival artifact, I've, I've tried to show how practices of commensuration created a crisis of credibility. These struggles of credibility were to have long-term consequences, both for the transformation of the ideology of writing and forms of attestation and the political project of pacification. As colonial pacification began to make the Kanakan a bureaucrat documenter, officials had to contend with a mode of writing and record keeping in which protocols of attestation and credibility were not detachable from the forms of knowledge itself. 
Their efforts to discipline record keeping changed the very ideology of writing, severing it from the modes of memory that it was once attached to. But the, figure of the, of, but the central figure of colonial pacification, the Kanakan, became completely untrustworthy. My larger interest in Kanakan skills and record keeping is to recenter the problem of writing and trust in the consolidation of the early colonial state. And I feel that it's only by analyzing how and why Tamar Kanakapilis posed such a challenge to straight-driven projects of stabilizing records that we can make sense of the variety of informal practices of accumulation and coercion that emerged around him and the written document in early 19th century Madras. Thank you. Thank you.